Hey everybody, it is Richard Harris and Scott Lease uh, with another exciting episode of the Surf and Sales podcast brought to you in part by Salesforce Sales Cloud, Gong.io, the game changer in conversational intelligence, Lead 411 and Vidyard. So please uh, give a shout out to our folks over there. They really do help support us and, and we certainly want to support them as much as they support us. And before we introduce our guest, today is... I'm not mistaken, June 30th. So that means it's a very special day. Scott, Lease, happy birthday, my brother. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Congrats on on turning 44. Right, 44. 44. 44 today. So so, uh, I look forward to seeing you later this weekend as well. Uh, But now on to our guest, who's far more important than either Scott or myself, uh, is David Nugent who is the former chief commercial officer over at Omnigon. Uh, I'm going to have you tell folks, David, about kind of what that was, because it's fascinating. You you know, you were a client of mine last year and you do amazing, fascinating things in my mind with with what that organization did. So David, thanks so much for coming to the the show and share with people what Omnigon does. Uh, Sure. I have to say happy birthday to Scott. First, I, I didn't realize it was your birthday, so. Happy birthday. Thank you. I'm impressed you showed up, to be honest with you. So, (laughs) Uh, Omnigon was, or so Omnigon turned into another company called uh, InfrontX. I was one of the founders of Omnigon back in 2008, and it was a technology services provider um, that focused on the sports media and entertainment space. Um, So, we sort of partially intentionally and partially unintentionally carved out a niche for ourselves. Uh, in finding that there are certain things that folks that are focused on event dates really need. So if you think about if you're running a sports team or a league or even an entertainment business, everything drives towards a date that's not going to move, right? You know, whether it's the Super Bowl or a PGA Tour event or a Radio City Music Hall event, um, there are certain common needs um, that exist. And coming out of Web web 1.0, Uh, and kind of evolving into Web 2.0 when the iPhone came out in, I think, 2009, the the needs around businesses like this started to change. We happened to land a client in Madison Square Garden who touched on kind of everything, right? They owned venues, they owned a network, they owned teams. So there were these recurring themes to the needs that they had from a technology standpoint. Um, We had been doing business in the federal space for... um, the TSA and Department of Homeland Security around some really hardcore like biometric security stuff. So we came to the table as these valid technologists and I'm a passionate sports guy and, and had done some work previously with the Rangers and the Knicks. Um, we wound up sort of, again, carving out this niche for ourselves in providing bespoke technology services and then operating support for folks in the sports media and entertainment space. So talk about just for a quick second, you know, because these are big orgs, right? Um, even the team itself is a big org, not to mention just the league itself. What, you know, can you talk about like, what's your average deal size for something like that? Are they seven figures? Are they eight figures? What's the sales cycle like? Like it's fascinating on many levels. Yeah. You know, uh, I was talking to somebody recently who's, you know, had sales as a primary portion of their responsibility for most of their lives. And, and I don't know if I coined this phrase, but you know, sales is not a one size fits all kind of a thing, right? So when you're dealing with a large enterprise and you're focused on services, the price points, you know, I'll give you a little bit of background first. So um, the business that we were in 
really focused on primarily on sports uh, leagues, governing bodies, but also media companies. And a lot of that was driven by the, the way that media rights are managed first in North America and then in Europe as we grew the business into Europe. So in, in North America, most of those rights from a digital technology standpoint exist uh, at the league level, the league or governing body level. Um, so you, you tend to be doing, if you're providing the kinds of platform services we were providing, you tend to be doing things that where the deal sizes are always north of 100K, right? They're always six and seven figure deals. And as all of us with revenue generating responsibilities like to say, you want multi-year deals, right? You want longer term commitments so that you have some predictability. Um, when you're dealing at the team level in North America, uh, digital technology stuff is typically at lower price points. So while they'll spend $12 million on, play, on a, you know, a player contract in a given year, getting them to attract fans from a digital tech standpoint and spend 25K might be harder. Um, again, primarily because most of those rights are tied up at the league level above them. But for us, deal sizes were as, you know, in the very beginning, they might've been south of six figures, but as the business evolved, they were always hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And as a, as a result, the sales cycle, as you can imagine, is pretty long. You got to be valid first, right? Because when you're spending a half a million dollars or $2 million on something, You've got a, you know, you got careers at stake sometimes. So um, becoming valid and trustworthy first became a, kind of the primary priority. Yeah. Is it, does it get easier when one team kind of is the first to say yes to some new piece of technology? And there's a reason behind this ask. Um, and it, obviously when you sell technology, like the more deals you close, you, okay, you got testimonials, you got referrals, like there's social proof, whatever. But it's interesting to Richard and I, because sports is such a copycat, you know, it's a copycat league. You hear that phrase, right? Everybody right. goes small ball. One, one team does good with small ball, so everybody goes small ball. One team has a mobile quarterback, so now everybody's got a mobile quarterback. One team or one league adopts this new piece of technology that nobody else is doing. Does everybody else go, oh, shit? We better do that. Is it like a rush to the cash register or does it remain difficult? Uh, I think it, that's, it's a great analogy and you're right. You know, small ball in baseball or the mobile quarterback in football, like those things do exist on that. So that's, you know, uh, in, in sports, you kind of have um, sports ops, right? Hockey ops or basketball ops or baseball ops. That's the running of the team, like making sure that you got the right players and salary cap and all that. And then you have business ops and on the business ops side, there's definitely a herd mentality when it comes to, when you think about it, revenue generation, there's only a few paths, right? There's ticket sales, there's media rights are the big one, right? Even at a local, like yep. a, a club level, local media rights, regional sports network rights are what's driving most of the revenue. And then ticket sales and sponsorship and merchandise and all those other things follow that. So on the tech side, there's very much a herd mentality because as you can imagine, you know, Sports is in, in many ways is kind of like an old boys club, right? Like they've been printing money a certain way for a really, really long time. And when a certain uh, role evolves and a certain individual shows leadership and thought leadership from a tech standpoint that leads to money, well, everybody kind of looks up, right? And everyone says, wow, what are, what are they, what are the, you know, what are the Warriors doing or what are the Dallas Stars doing or how did, you know, how did they come up with this? 
And immediately there's a, there's a lot of conversation around, is that the direction that the business should be going? Um, and then there's obviously a conversation around ROI, right? What do you need to invest in that thing to turn that into money and how long is it going to take? But I do think to your point, there's definitely a herd mentality when it comes to tech because prime, you know, I, I don't want to speak for, for every team or every league, but for new technologies, you know, the bleeding edge stuff, everyone's a little afraid, right? Like, what am I going to yeah. invest here? And first it's, you know, a risk aversion thing. Um, and if, and if there's proof in the market that some, that something is working, people are definitely going to start. Are there, are there early adopters? Like, are there, you know, like, okay, if I were doing this tech thing, you know, you know, you know, I would try to go to this particular type of team or this particular type of leader at that team because they would be open to it. Without, without question. And that's a cultural thing, right? Uh, both at the league and team level. And some of that has to do with the, the way the organization thinks about culture in general, right? So culture typically drives every organization. And if you're uh, culturally risk averse, um, you may have really solid systems, but you may not be the one, the first one to wade into something new. And the reverse is true as well. Um, I can say that the folks that we, we worked with the PGA Tour for over a decade, and they were some of the most forward leaning uh, mm. folks culturally from a technology standpoint, primarily because if you think about a golf event, you know, at the beginning of the golf event, you have 150 plus players, 200 acres, Lots of, lots of holes, lots of shots, and over 70 data points per shot on the PGA Tour, right? So there's an opportunity, and you can't watch every shot. Like if you're watching on TV, you know, you're moving hole to hole because you have to. You can't possibly watch every single player take every single shot. So there's a, a tremendous opportunity from a digital tech standpoint to provide fans with data and data visualizations and lots of different things, and they had all that data. So they were ones that leaned heavily in uh, and still do to this day on what is possible from a tech standpoint. Um, what, about, what, about, what about the opposite of that? Can, can you gently throw a league <laughs> under the bus? Who's, who's like the slowest? They're too, they're too big. I'm, I will be doing no throwing under the bus today. <laughs> uh, but but I'll, I'll say this. The more money you make, the, the less uh, open you probably are to testing things and taking risks, right? So what you what you'll find, you know, if you think about like um, there's well, that's there's, an interesting that's an interesting philosophy. Yeah, you'd almost think it'd be the opposite. Yes. I'm making so much money, I can play a little faster and looser. But no, um, right. you, you you may think that, <laughs> right? But yeah, I, that's yeah. not that's not always the case. If you think about it, at the other end of the spectrum, there's something called the fan controlled football league. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. Um, but it is, uh, you know, the fans actually yeah. in real time are have an opportunity to call a play and Johnny Manziel and a few others have participated yep. in this league. And like, they're all about taking risks, right? Because they're trying, they're, they need eyeballs. Like they're trying to gather audience. They're trying to do things that no one else has done before. So in some ways, the smaller the entity, the more important it is for them to do things big, even if they fail, I can understand that. you know, it does, it doesn't feel like it matters as much, I think. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. No, I, I, I can, I can see that. I can, I can, under, I can understand that. I, it's just interesting that um, that sports and the leagues in general, who who are often innovating all over the place. You mentioned like different shots and angles on a on a PGA course, things like that. That they're just so far behind 
in adopting certain technology. Richard and I have discovered this in terms of sales technology, for example, or even customer success kind of technology. I was talking to my friend uh, who lives in Paris the, the other day, and he was like, just like everything else in France, we're two years behind you guys in the U.S. And I'm thinking to myself, well, in sports, like you're not two years behind B2B. You're like 10 years behind B2B, right? Like nobody's using like Salesforce and CRMs and like an enablement platform and, and coaching technology and all these things. And, and it was, Richard and I were like, minds were blown at the way that the sales orgs that are doing ticket sales and group sales and sponsorships and suites and all this kind of thing. Is, does the, is, that's a business operations risk adverse kind of mindset which is different than the cultural risk aversion to maybe like how they actually run the team and engage with the community and stuff like that is it is it really like bifurcated like that yeah it's a it's a great question and again it's it's cultural right like certain organizations culture that said my experience is not that none of these you know when you think about something like ticket sales it's not that none of these organizations have salesforce or you know have uh, adopted a a CRM the, the right way and integrated the, the right way. There, there are some pretty forward thinking orgs when it comes to that. In fact, there are a lot of team owners in certain sports who've invested in technology companies. Um, Dan yeah. Gilbert of the Cavaliers is uh, yeah. uh, Cuban, one of Mark the, Cuban. Mark Cuban yeah. has a Robert Kraft Kraft of the Patriots. So there, there is a, a fair, uh, a fair amount of that, that, that goes on, but you're right. Again, you know, when you think back to culture, what would you do if you had enough money to buy a professional sports team? Well, the, one of the first things that a lot of them do is say, well, my cousin Susie knows marketing, right? So she should be, <laughs> now this, yeah. is, this is a little less true today than it was maybe a decade or so ago. But if you're a billionaire, it's an opportunity to give your friends a lot of cool jobs, right? Like, Did you hear that, Richard? When you're a billionaire. <laughs> Scott, you're the one who's going to be there first. You're, you're going to give me a cool job. I expect a marketing role, Richard, when you buy the 49ers or the Giants or something. Dude, you're going to get there faster than me. <laughs> but look, I think that's a, like, a, I'm sort of joking. It's a little less true than it used to be. But there, there, in some organizations, there are still family-run businesses. I mean, you know, these are very, very wealthy people who made their money a different way, right? And they then pull together a cadre of people to run the team that they're really smart They hire a consultant and it's a good consultant ideally. And that person says, all right, well, this is philosophically, you know, you need a leader at the top of the organization and they're going to fill things in. But sometimes it doesn't necessarily work that way. Um, I, I can say also at the lower levels, you know, when you think about like independent baseball, which are, which is a super, super, super local and it, yeah. often in very, very small towns, you know, the guys that own those teams were the guy that ran the mill or the mine in town. And, you know, he spun up a, a, a professional baseball team more for the community benefit than to line his own pocket. In fact, most of those teams don't even make any money. So, and, th and that's a that's a purely gate driven. It's good for the community kind of thing to do, which is at the other end of the spectrum of owning, you know, a, a National Football League team, which is requires billions and billions and billions of dollars. And uh, you have to have extraordinarily deep pockets. And these days you're going to be pretty sophisticated from a business standpoint. Yeah, that's great. I want to, I want to pull us out of this part of the conversation, although I know we could go for hours. I know I could probably jump, jump off and Scott could talk to you for three hours. <laughs> I know, he's, he's such a huge sports fanatic. Um, chief commercial officer. What's that really mean? 
right? We, we talk to a lot of, you know, VPs of sales and directors of sales. And, and of course we now, you know, the new catchphrase is chief revenue officer. How do, how do you see a chief commercial officer? Is it the same as a CRO, a little different? Like what, what's it mean for people? I, I think that's, it's a really good question. I, you know, when, when I took that role, I kind of had a voice in like what that title should be because my job was, I was sort of the lead evangelist of the business, right? So, you know, and a lot of that is sales, but a lot, also a lot of that is like brand management and making sure that we're seen from a commu communication standpoint the right way. What is, you know, what does the press effort look like? So for me, it was touching all things that would result in relationships that generated revenue, right? So it was sales and marketing and communications, was the way that I saw it. And I was a bit of a control freak when it came to the business. You know, I was one of four founders of the business that turned into a company of 350 people across nine offices around the world. It was, I, it was very personal to me. Like I took every single thing I read in the press and every conversation very personally. So for me, it was messaging. It was controlling the messaging that ultimately would lead to the trust that turned into revenue. I'm not sure that that's what it means for everyone. Like. In a CRO role, often I think it's a little bit more sales oriented. Um, I think marketing can be separate, although I think it depends on the organization. Um, for me, you can you can refer to it as a control freak title. Like I just wanted to make sure everything that anybody would see was going to fall under me, and my partners were okay with that. And that's kind of how it evolved. I don't know if that's a rule or if that was just my rule. Yeah, I, I find well, it, you do it. I do know you're a control freak based on the perfect visual you have of your office and your camera and your distance and all the things hanging <laughs> like your hat rack everything's hanging i've been here for years <laughs> i've been sitting in this chair for two years i'm curious how long it's it funny. took you to do that um or is it still ongoing is it is it a constant living room oh, it's a, yeah the, this the hockey stick coat rack with the hats is, is relatively new i took that out of my office in the city about a month ago. that's awesome scott there's your new birthday present i'm gonna get you a baseball bat uh, yeah, that would I be, like that. I like that. I want. I want to know if David was gonna was gonna do this again. This meaning, um, build another company with co-founders and technology coming up. Do you think that your your desire to control things like that is the same today? Would you run it the same way? Would you uh, delegate more? Would you remove yourself? A little bit more from the process or would you do it the same way because you know what damn it it worked that last time and i know it'll work again uh it's a really good question i, I have i'm talking to a couple of people about doing some things where we're going to empower other people to have that kind of success and you know that will be a we're, we're uh, going to be investing some money in in organizations that are run by women or minorities where i think there's an underserved community out there and I think the experience that I've had specifically in, you know, larger size deals in, this, in tech services can be helpful to a lot of those businesses. That doesn't mean I wouldn't spin up another tech services business, um, but I would really want to empower others to run through the walls that I had to run through for 15 years. Uh, I'm getting a little older. I'm not sure I have the energy to get on a plane three or four times a month. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that it is, but it is a great opportunity. You know, we, we, when you think about like where identifying your strengths and weaknesses is like kind of job one for all of us, right? Where, what gap do I have? And my, I think my strength was in developing trust-based relationships 
um, and and understanding what the other side was thinking, like what were they afraid of? You know, what really matters to them? It's really about them, not us. And I think imparting that on others who actually care about more than just like how much money can I make? If you start with how much money I can I make as a as a founding principle of starting a business, I feel like you're on the wrong track. So I, I think I could probably create some value in helping others start businesses like that. Will I do it again? Not of that scale. It takes, you know, it, it takes a lot out of you. <laughs> takes it out of you, yeah. What would you, yeah, let's say you did, let's say you were 10 years younger, right? And you were gonna go, what would be the lessons you'd take with you? Um, you know, one of the things I used to say in the office all the time, and I, and I firmly believe this still is um, I'll trade money for commitment any day of the week. In other words, like if you'll commit to a partnership um, and we can talk about that partnership over the next 12 or 24 months, something like that, I'll, you know, I'll knock the numbers down. It's, it's always, to me, it's much less about, again, I was in the services business, right? So if you're an agency or a tech consulting company, like it's less about the project fees you can make in the short term than about the relationships you can gain in the longer term, especially in the sports business. Because in the sports business, and, I'm, and other industries are like this too, I think, but in the sports business, people tend to move from one sport or team to another. So if you, you can maintain yeah. this crazy network of people, yeah. if you do the right thing by them, right? Like create value for them in real time. As, the longer you're in it, the broader that network is and the more meaningful conversations yeah. you can have. That, so that, that part that that part makes so much so much sense to me, and I can see how somebody, you know, can have a long successful career. The part that seems scary to me is how the fuck do you break into this industry? Yeah. Like, what what about the person who's just getting started and doesn't have this Rolodex, doesn't know all these players and and the history there, hasn't been to. 4,000 different games and steak dinners and cocktails with everybody, right? It's like, what advice do you give somebody who's, you know, just getting into this kind of industry for the first time and doesn't have all those relationships? How do you, how would they, how would they go about starting that? It, you're right. It's really hard. And, and if you think about tough. it, yeah, yeah. If you think about it from, I think, you know, any of us who are in charge of trying to find money, Right. You always have to think about the other side. Right. So what is the what what matters to the other side? And if you think about it, a lot of these guys, you know, for the things that we were dealing with, it was the people in charge of digital technology, uh, tech or um, streaming video or whatever. Think about how many calls or emails they get every day with, that say like, hey, I have this thing that no one else has done and it'll allow you yeah. to, you know, better ROI on your video streams or whatever. Right. Like there's there's All the just so, yeah, there's just yeah. so much of that. So how do you how do you break down the, you know, the uncertainty and vulnerability that you feel as a buyer. And I, I think that the short answer is you get somebody that they trust to say they should talk to you. Right. So I had a, I had a guy who was a client of mine at the NHL, a super respected guy uh, in the sports business who runs a company called sports media advisors. Now a guy named Doug Perlman and Doug and I knew each other for years. And when we started this business, I went to Doug, Doug was a sports business journal, 40 under 40 hall of famers. So that means he, he, that means he won for the 40 under 40 award at least three times. He was crazy. It was and still crazy, crazy connected. Right. So I went to Doug and said like, what can we do to help accelerate 
something that had already begun because of some relationship uh, relationships I had at Madison Square Garden. Um, that's a path, right? So there are people who specialize in, and I can be one of those people for, for people yeah. out there if, if, if you know they have interest in that. But it's first, are you valid, right? Like, is what you're bringing to the table actually helpful? And for that, you need to understand the industry um, and you need to understand the context in which the, the, uh, the, the buyer, the, somebody on the buying side is going to get ROI out of whatever you're doing. And sometimes just having a meaningful voice, you can use LinkedIn for this, right? Are you connected to other people in the, in the business through, um, through anybody that you know? But I'm, I'm, Richard, make no mistake, it's not easy. It is not easy. Richard, it, it sounds like what David is saying, Richard, is that we should use him to help <laughs> kick down all the doors and get right. all this intro. We'll, we'll that's what I, that's what I heard. David, we'll peel some. He, he I, I would do anything for Richard. So that, that's, not, that's not a bear. Although he gave me some really interesting advice when we first talked about this, which I think is important. Like, for, for, I don't know how many people listen to this who sell into to sports teams, but you know, if you're trying to sell into places like the NFL um, and even Major League Baseball, but the NFL, their big revenue, probably the NBA too, is it's TV revenue, right? Like they care about ticket sales. They do because they they want a fan base and they want the loyalty and they there's tremendous value in you know what's the value of, of someone coming to the event, food wise, parking wise you know, over the life of that individual, right? Like how much, Scott, how much money have you spent on Giants gear? I have no, an obscene amount probably. <laughs> I mean, five grand, three grand? Probably more than five grand over the course right. of my lifetime so, for everyone in my family, yes. Yeah, so that, that was interesting to me that, that that was sort of the piece that, where I tried to connect the dots between, you know, the sales, you know, ticket sales versus all that kind of stuff. And just out of curiosity, David, do you know what the value of a fan is in some league? I am curious if that's a data point people look at at all. Yeah, I mean, um, the short answer is not really, right? Because it depends on how you measure that metric. Call it, call it point, a season ticket holder. What's a season ticket holder worth outside depends, the seat license? Well, it yeah, it depends on the sport. Um, in the NFL, I think the numbers, and we went through this during COVID, so we crunched these numbers, but I'm trying to remember them. The NFL, I think total revenue, uh, as a representation of total revenue, ticket sales is between 15 and 18%, I think, because they make so much, so many billions of dollars in, in TV revenue. On the other hand, the National Hockey League, I'm a huge National Hockey League fan. The National Hockey League was closer to, I think it was slightly more than 50% was media. Now they just redid their deal. So that's that dynamic will change. But think about if you're a big league like the NHL and half your money-ish is coming from ticket sales and all of a sudden nobody's allowed to go, right? That There's a significantly yeah, greater trouble. impact on that business. So in some ways, the more important ticket sales are, the, you know, the more help they may need. In a lot of sports like the NFL, there's some teams that need some help with ticket sales, certainly on the season ticket side, because it's getting trickier to come out to games. But there's only now 17 games plus playoffs in preseason. In the NHL, it's 41 home games. In the NBA, it's 41 home games. In Major League Baseball, it's 81 home games, right? Yeah. So Versus there's a lot th in the NFL. Right. Maybe exactly. Not. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So fascinating. So, so just out of curiosity, were you? You know, were you always into business as a kid? Were you always the hustler growing up, or did you just? What came for, actually? What came first, the sports or the business? That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, 
That's a really good question. I always had jobs. You know, I, I, I didn't live in a house where there were allowances. And by the way, my kids, I have two, my two teenagers are both lifeguards. They've never had an allowance in their life. They, you know, you eat what you kill, basically, right? Like you want to make more money, go make more money. Um, so I think certainly from the mindset I had from a young age was that I think, uh, and I actually talked about this in the semi-big version of the book that I have. Uh, I think when I realized that I needed to go out on my own was when I had a job in a financial services business, um, wearing a suit and tie every day, making pretty good money for somebody, you know, right out of college, actually very good money. But, you know, seeing a lot of older guys wandering around in suits that are now old, still are older than I am now and thinking like, is that going to be me like in 40 or 50 years? Uh, I think that drove me to, to, you know, figure out business on my own and to be an entrepreneur. And it's, uh, you know, anybody that's done it, it's a slow, painful were you a, process. Were you an athlete though? Like growing up, were you the athlete? And did you have the aspirations? And finally someone said, David you know, we love you, but I was an athlete. I was a middle of the road athlete my entire life. In fact, my dad's, I, I loved hockey. And I started playing kind of late and I think I was like 12 or 13. My mom said to me one day, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I'm going to play in the NHL. My dad like stepped right in and said, you're never going to play in the NHL. You're not even the best guy on your team and your team sucks. <laughs> so it was clear to me that I was not going to be a professional athlete, but that didn't dampen my passion for, for sports. Are you, are you prepared to have that conversation with Bodie, Richard? Me? Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. I want him to chase it. Wow. <laughs> Like don't that. crush yeah, yeah my, you don't you want to be crushing my, dreams he's 11 my my kids say shit like that and i'm like oh uh so you're gonna go outside and practice a few hours yeah. later today or do you still want to play fortnite right and they right. just give me this look like well fortnite's whatever, a professional whatever sport now whatever right. dad that we didn't don't get me started on that, that david i'm <laughs> encouraging them we could do a whole episode on you know the esports, right? Like that's, did you, before you left, did you guys do anything with esports? Oh yeah. We, we, uh, we did all the Activision Blizzard, uh, league stuff. So we did the call of duty league. We did overwatch. Um, we did a ton of work with Activision Blizzard across a, a bunch of different things. That's a whole ecosystem that is very different. And for an, a traditional sports guy like me, a little bit hard to get your head around in the beginning. Um, but it's a big business, a really big business. So give, give two pieces or three pieces of advice for those of us who are parents and our kids are going down this silly road. I, I'm much happier saying this one, Scott, of, you know, they think they could be YouTube famous. They think they could yeah, be, I'm gonna be a YouTuber, you know, an esports guy. Like, what advice do you give to the parents of those kids? I think the parents are sometimes part of the problem, to be honest. <laughs> like, Just like any yeah, other sport. I, yeah, I, I took a break from tech. So I was around at Web 1.0. I formed my first uh, tech consultancy business in like 96, believe it or not. So the very beginning of the internet. And then I left that business to run a business that was a sports marketing business, which is where I built most of my connections. And during that process, I actually ran what was the punt passing kick of the NHL. It was a program called Got Skills. And what I realized in running around the country, and we'd get a couple of the local NHL guys would come on the ice with us, and we would run these kids through skills competitions, and we built a tech platform where they could see their scores in real time. It was it was a really innovative uh, at the time. 
But what I learned during that time is, A, it's not the kids that all think that they're going to play Division One hockey or football or basketball. It's the parents. The parents are in the crowd videoing these kids and arguing after the fact that, you know, the, the radar gun's wrong or, you know, whatever. The, 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 this, the kids just want to play, right? Like, they just want to have fun, especially – nine to 12 year old kids so scott scott lives in texas right so it's, everything's a big sport in texas scott what percentage of the parents on your teams are these parents 80 percent. really yeah. are you one of the 80 yeah. yes but i'm on the low end of internet. <laughs> but i also know you like sure. I know your kids and i know their skill level so i got it you know um, no, my level of you insanity, try not like, yeah my level of insanity is, is like as long as they want to do it I'll go do it. Uh, I'm, I'm like not, I'm not driving um, them to go practice seven days a week. If they come and ask me about it, they want to go do it. Great. Like my, my son wants the radar gun brought out. I'll bring the radar gun. Do you have one? Do you have a radar? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I'm, I'm so stupid. How, yeah. Richard, how could you ask? <laughs> they want They want to know. Look at and, and the parents, David, David, David is right. If you 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 spent if you spend time at one of my son's baseball tournaments here in Texas, right? And my son my son is on at the highest level that there is here in Texas, and they've been ranked in the top twenty in the nation at times for eleven year olds. Um, people are insane. <laughs> the parents are absolutely insane. I I once had somebody get mad at me, a dad teammate of ours, because I marked an error, and he thought that it should have been a hit. And that was going to fuck his son's batting average up. And, the, and you know, the coach would look at the data and therefore, you know, drop him in the order or something like that. It's like, dude, okay, you want me to change it? I'll, I'll change it. Okay. <laughs> they think yeah. they're real. We're, we're, you know, this intent, the level of intensity is building better athletes, right? The athletes at professional levels are better than they were 10 or 20 years ago. The problem is it's also built this massive specialization. So, um, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but like a lot of times if your kid is good and they play on a travel team, that travel team expects them to play year round. So they're not playing other sports, which There's actually a, doesn't make con- a better athlete. It's, con- it's contractual now, David. Yeah. I don't know if you know this. Yeah. It's contractual. Yeah. Like my, my son, uh, we ended up not, not playing with this one soccer club at, at this particular high level, which is like the MLS training, uh, you know, level. Because it specifically says in the contract, your son will not play other sports. Yeah. And that's not good for the kids. I mean, it doesn't make, you know, ask Michael Jordan or Cal Ripken or anybody else that, you know, reached the highest levels. A lot of that is, you know, different speed of mus- muscle twitch and different hand-eye coordination. And it's better for the club, you know, the, the travel team that they participate on because they want to keep those top, top athletes year round. But, um, but that also what they really want is the money from those athletes. Yeah, they're looking, they're looking for recurring revenue annually. Yeah. Just and they're seeing kids as a SaaS platform, right? Like that's <laughs> how I see it, right? Um, so I, it's it is crazy. Well, if they, yes, but they're but they're a really bad SaaS company because they're really terrible at customer service <laughs> yeah. totally and, and retention customer of their clients. Doesn't matter. That's right. They don't realize that the client matters, right? Like That's right. they're really bad at customer support. They're really bad at uh, client services. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Dude, this flew by. Holy cow. Um, That's because we're talking sports and sports and business, Richard. I know yeah. this is the easiest conversation we could have. 
<laughs> David, you know, we always sort of turn it around, um, but we also want to give a quick shout out to Salesforce, Sales Cloud, uh, Lead411, Gong.io, and um, Vidyard, so to our sponsors. But David, you know, is there a question you want to ask us? We're happy to support you. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'd love to know, you, you guys mentioned that you've, you've reached out to, to, to different sports organizations and, um, you know, I'd love to hear about that experience. And, and I think you mentioned that, like, you're not even seeing sometimes like a CRM platform or, you know, there's a lack of maturity in these organizations. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, we, you know, the soccer stuff was interesting, but I felt like the, the couple of people we talked to were very risk averse, right? They're at that low end where ticket sales matter because that's what we're, you know, we're, you know, we're talking about training their sales teams, right? Like how do we help them encourage their teams, whether it's suites or ticket sales or whatever. Um, and so they were a little risk averse on that. Um, and they were a little dodgy about telling us too much, um, you know, which it's okay, you know, but Scott and I are generally pretty easy to talk to. So um, I felt like they thought they were going to give away bad secrets, right? Um, we talked to uh, some Major League Baseball teams and um, one guy was super nice, really helpful and supportive. To your point, he sort of started in the minor league stuff and then worked his way up. And now he's up, you know, he's up at another level. He's actually been on the podcast. Um, but he sort of confirmed the same things so of like, yes, it's a, much of a copycat league. There's sort of a need for it. There's sort of not. Um, and then we talked to one guy who I felt like was kind of cocky. Scott, do you remember that one? Um, yeah. So anyway, so yeah. I'll stop there and get Scott's opinion. So, so it's interesting because it's, it's a nut that we would love to crack. And, you know, because we love sports and we love business. So it's like, why wouldn't we try to do that? Um, but Scott, what's your thought? No, my, my general takeaway is that, um, these organizations as a collective whole are running sales playbooks from the late 1990s and the consultants that they've used are the same three or four people since the late 1990s. And it's a different sales world and that world demands modern sales tactics and building a modern day sales organization of which we at least have not uncovered one yet. So <clears throat> Richard is more into the training side of things just by nature of his business. I'm more into the, how do we build sales orgs, scalable, repeatable sales orgs and what systems and processes to put in place. And so, you know, I'm more of like a wrecking ball when I come in, I'm like, this shit is all fucked up. You're doing things from so long ago. And I think that you could actually like revolutionize how things are done and be a huge lift to your organization. And I think that one team in one league is going to recognize that and take that step. And they're gonna see a big transformational lift. And then I think to the copycat point, I think other eyeballs are gonna to start to look at them and be like, well, what did the Islanders do to boost all this ticket sales and, and get all these people back and have 100% you know, season tickets? And what does their nurture campaigns look like? And, when, and then you're the Rangers across town and you're like, how come you're not doing that? How come we're not doing any of that stuff? What's going on over there? And, you know, change is hard. Change is scary. But there's going to be somebody, I think, who, who enters this sales leadership realm in one of these organizations that is, is willing to incorporate more of like software B2B kind of strategies. And I, and I think it's going to be a game changer. And I think people will copy them. 
Yeah, the one thing I would say is um, the opportunity is likely in the, in the non-traditional or smaller markets, right? Like yeah. the, the Knicks and Rangers in New York, they're selling out, right? Like they, do they, do they care about tickets sales? Of course, but it's not like a major, major challenge. The yeah. Phoenix Coyotes in the NHL, you know, depending on how yeah. good the team is, that's a different kind of a challenge. I think that's true in smaller markets in general and in all sports. Yeah, yeah for sure. Winning, that's how, that's how you, right? <laughs> yeah, winning, winning, winning does help for sure. Yeah, that makes so. that makes total sense. David, man, this has been awesome. Good one, just good to catch up with you. Um, by the way, I what are you doing now? We didn't even cover that. Like, I know you started sort of your own consulting stuff, but. What are you up to? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the process of a few different, starting a few different things up, but it, n- none of them are fully operational yet. I'm, I am doing a little bit of consulting. I am working with a partner on launching a business that'll be focused on um, helping women and minorities, uh, minority founders of businesses launch their businesses, leveraging some of the experience that he and I have. He, he also ran, a, he ran an agency business, uh, not completely dissimilar to mine, but not focused on technology. So um, we'll, we're, we're going to be coming out of the summer uh, with a kind of a few things going on. Um, for now, I, my oldest is headed off to college in, at the end of August. So I'm going to focus on a little downtime with the family and, um, you know, opportunistically get involved in a few things. That, that's about it. That's awesome. So for folks listening, it's David Nugent. You can find him on LinkedIn. Um, obviously, he's got a wealth of knowledge in, in an industry that so many people in sales I know are fans of um, and we'll just enjoy hearing this is kind of a little bit of what it's like behind the curtain, you know? So David, thank you so much for coming on, man. We really, really. I appreciate it guys. It was great to catch up. Um, fun combo as always. Um, thank you. Talking again soon.